Did you know that only about 20% of the land upon which the Civil War was fought is permanently preserved either by nonprofit groups or in national, state, or local parks? The figure is even lower for the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, where almost 70% of the major battles were fought in areas today considered urban. The rest of that hallowed ground is either unprotected or has already been destroyed. The American Battlefield Trust is racing the developers to save what is left. If you would like to assist the American Battlefield Trust, please log on to battlefields.org. Shepherd University's George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War and Department of History invite undergraduate students from across the country to come and spend a semester at their historic crossroads in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Their semester-long Civil War experience will immerse a select group of undergraduate students in collaborative learning, interpretive field experiences, digital humanities projects, public history programs, and a war and society approach to military history. For more information, please visit www.shepherd.edu slash Civil War Semester. What's up, everybody? Hey, my name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. You know, I have a little bit of a scratchy throat now. Uh, I'm starting to feel like I might be coming down with a little bit of a cold, but I hope my voice holds up for this intro. This is a great episode. I'm speaking with my friend Lexi Kirshner, and she is a park guide at the home of FDR in Hyde Park, and she also has done uh, guide work and ranger work at the Eleanor Roosevelt National Historic Site. And since this week is Valentine's Day week, uh, I know some some don't uh, celebrate, some do, I figured we should talk about a couple who uh, was not only a married couple, but was a couple who had this unique partnership. And uh, one couldn't really do without the other. One was dependent upon the other for help and guidance and uh, in the case of FDR, someone who could help him with his polio, which he uh, was stricken with in the 1920s and had to go through for the rest of his life, obviously. And Lexi is very passionate about this subject. She's very passionate about FDR. She's very passionate about Eleanor and Eleanor's public life. And we go into that in this episode. Now, this was my first Skype interview for this podcast. I usually do these live I like to do them live, but, you know, more and more, I have to reach out to people who aren't in my geographic area, and I have to Skype interview with them. So I uh, got on Skype with Lexi, and in the beginning, we had some uh, technical difficulties with the sound. Uh, internet service was being a little wonky because we on the East Coast were being hit with a small snowstorm. But we pushed through it, and we did pretty well. This is actually Lexi's first podcast interview as well. So she was a little bit nervous, but uh, she did great. And you can really tell that she's really passionate about this subject by the way that she presents this narrative of these two remarkable individuals in American history. Uh, It was a great discussion. I am so proud of it. Uh, As I said, there were some sound issues due to it being over Skype. Uh, I know that the internet where she is at is a little bit wonky from time to time. 
So please bear with that sound issue. But this overall story is so very important to dispel some of the mess and to bring out some of the information that we don't often hear when we talk about uh, FDR and Eleanor. So again, this is my friend Lexi Kirshner for her first podcast interview, and I want to thank her for that. Uh, talking to us about FDR and Eleanor, their unique relationship, their powerful relationship in the political world, and how it affected people long after FDR's passing. So please enjoy this podcast. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show. Uh, I have a very cool guest on today who uh, really knows so much about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. In fact, uh, you know, she's she's more knowledgeable than some of the authors I think I've talked to. Uh, is that a good shout out, Lexi? Thanks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she definitely uh, Lexi can definitely, you know, keep a room occupied with this information. She's she's a very, a very good speaker. And I'm happy to have you on, Lexi. Thank you so much. It's nope. awesome to be here. Yeah, it's a it's a new experience for you because it's your first uh, podcast interview, right? Yeah. Well, all out here in the interwebs. Yes, yes. Getting all 21st century now, right? Yes, very unusual for me. And I just found out today, and I have to uh, go through you know, some of the background information on this, but I found out today on television that Franklin Delano Roosevelt is Cardi B's favorite president. And I was like, wow, that's something different. So apparently she was a history teacher or wanted to be a history teacher, and she knows the presidents, and FDR is her favorite. I respect that. I mean, same, but that's to be expected. But I can totally see why that would be. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. I mean, she she certainly is serving a lot of, like, modern political tea, if I'm able to be so newfangled <laughs> and young, to use the phrase. Yeah, you want to be that uh, bold? <laughs> right <laughs> right but i think i think definitely i mean the roosevelts were progressive beyond their times especially eleanor it's interesting of course franklin would be her favorite president but i have a feeling mm. that Car cardi b would be much more of an eleanor person to see all of the things that she did and all of the things she pushed for in terms of like feminism and civil rights and all sorts of things that were very visionary beyond her and franklin's time right yeah, I would I would think that too. Uh, for for everyone tuning in, uh, let's talk about you first. We need to uh, understand your background. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Lexi. Um. Well, I actually am a an interpretive park ranger at the home of Franklin Roosevelt National Historic Site and the Eleanor Roosevelt National Historic Site, and it's very exciting because I love my job very much. I actually was taken by my parents on my 17th birthday to the place where I currently work as a surprise present. So oh, cool. it's definitely like living the dream every day of the week. But um, I also um, did part of my education, I guess. I'm not done college yet, but I did part of my undergrad at Gettysburg College. And I'm kind of in the process of drifting and finding somewhere new to finish up with school, but also focusing more on all the cool opportunities that I have with the Park Service. So, Right. And, and you you haven't uh, completed your bachelor's, correct? 
nope, I so, can't even legally drink yet. Right. So so this this showcases, you know, a different way of, of basically breaking into the National Park Service and not having a degree yet. It allows uh, people, some of the, my listeners maybe, who aren't finished with their undergrad or anything like that, there are still opportunities out there for you. Oh, definitely. And I think a lot of times, too, like people get so wrapped up in the idea of like a public history degree or like internships. And if you think about it, maybe you don't need to do all that stuff. Maybe if you like really are passionate about it and know what you're talking about and and figure out like your skill set, like you can find your own path regardless of the paths that people say you have to take. Well, that, I'm a living example of that right now. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when when they say you're supposed to do it this way, I say no. I I want to do it a different way. Um, but that's what what's led us to this discussion today with doing this podcast. But again, I I want to thank you for doing this, and I know it's a little nerve wracking for your first one. And actually, this is my first one I've done over Skype, so I'm I'm <laughs> breaking new new ground with this as well. So, Very newfangled. Yes, yes. We're definitely both going into the 21st century now. <laughs> uh, so what are we going to talk about today, Lexi? So I think a lot of times people tend to approach different figures in history. Obviously, the Roosevelt's being my figures in history. But I think people tend to approach a lot of different people in history as being these these larger-than-life characters, these these figures, these academic concepts. And we kind of forget in that process that they're just normal people. And I think of all the people in our American cultural encyclopedia, the Roosevelts tend to get that treatment an awful lot. I mean, Franklin and Eleanor, even in their era, were treated as godlike. There are propaganda posters and newsreels that present FDR as being this godlike entity. And I really wanted to break it down today and show everyone how much of a human being that even the biggest historical figures can be. Because... Again, I think sometimes people tend to forget that history is just kind of a collection of stories of people peopling before we were around peopling ourselves. <laughs> That's so true. That is so yeah. true. Yeah, and I, and I think this is a great episode to bring out on Valentine's Day week uh, just because, you know, it, it involves more than just, you know, this the lovey-dovey stuff that we hear about on popular culture. It involves, you know, true partnership and, and depending on each other for certain things, and I think it's a good story to tell. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, like, what's more human than relationships, you know, like marriage and partnership and experiencing like the messiness of life together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really a part of Eleanor and Franklin's team story. Neither of them could have gotten as far as they did without the other. And I guess to kind of segue into the actual history part of this, to understand how impressive Eleanor and Franklin were together, you kind of have to understand who they were before they were together. So this is the exciting time that I get to talk about young wee baby Franklin Roosevelt <laughs> and his treasured life as a tiny golden child in the Hudson Valley. He was actually born to the world's most devoted mother who absolutely adored him. He came out weighing 10 pounds after a 24-plus-hour labor. Wow. So understandably, she worshipped the heck out of this little kid who almost <laughs> killed her in the process of coming into the world. And she doted on him, dressed him up in little sailor outfits and kilt outfits, and didn't even cut his hair until he was almost six years old. Hmm. She bought him ponies and sailboats, sent him all the best schools that money could pay for. He went to Groton Academy in Massachusetts, then to Harvard, then to Columbia to study the law. And he ended up growing up with all this adoration and smothering of affection, and it ended up creating a personality for him that was absolutely the most charismatic little young boy out there. He was a goody two-shoes. He didn't really know how to get along with children his age because his mom had made him into this happy, 
perfect little grown-up, a mini grown-up. Mm-hmm. So then, in contrast, I think you got to pay attention to Eleanor, too. And her young life was the exact opposite of what Franklin's was. Both of her parents, actually, had ended up dying by the time she was 10 years old. And her mother, when she was alive, made fun of little Eleanor. She teased her, made fun of how standoffish and quiet she was. Her mom thought she was ugly, too. Wow. her fanny. And her dad actually was an alcoholic. He was the dark horse of the Teddy Roosevelt side of the family, Teddy's um, brother, Elliot. And he ended up dying from complications of alcoholism just before Eleanor's birthday. Hmm. So Eleanor ends up being raised by her grandma at their estate in Tivoli, New York. And she's lonely. She's the only really kid there except for her brothers. And she doesn't really know how to interact with kids. She doesn't really know how to interact with people or be a person herself. And she ends up being withdrawn and lonely and insecure. And really, her only saving grace was the fact that some of her Roosevelt decided she needed to be sent to boarding school in London, the Allenswood Academy, that was headed by a woman named Mademoiselle Suvestra. And Suvestra was a pretty widely known lesbian, very open, very progressive, and challenged all these girls that went to her school to be free thinkers, to be critical thinkers, and to speak their minds and to be open-minded about things. So Eleanor finally comes into her own after all this insecurity and all this being put down in her childhood, comes into her own at Allenswood, and she comes back in 1902 from her time over abroad, and she's in time for her debut. So she's out there, and she ends up meeting Franklin Roosevelt at now, they can actually be met beforehand because they were fifth cousins once removed anyway, and families tend to bump around like that. But in 1902, they actually meet at the um, Madison Square Garden horse show, the Roosevelt Box. All the whole family was in there, and they end up hitting it off really at this point. And they start up. They talk over the next couple of years, and mm-hmm. they survive. And eventually, at Thanksgiving 1903, Franklin tells his mother. Sarah, again, who dotes on him and is the most respected person in the world. He would like to get engaged to Eleanor Roosevelt. In fact, that he had asked Eleanor Roosevelt to marry him, and she had said yes. And this had kind of sent Sarah's entire world, his mother's entire world, into this whole tumult. And I think about this particular point a lot, because sometimes I, w- I wonder if um, Franklin kind of manic pixie dream girl, if that's a term I can use, <laughs> Because Sarah, and if Sarah had actually seen this ahead of time, because Franklin, of course, wanted someone to dote on him like his mother did, someone to need him and to worship him. And she thought that Eleanor, this interesting, clever, now kind of come into her own girl, was just the person for him. She would need him because she was still insecure enough to need somebody or so she thought. But she also was clever and intelligent and challenged him a little bit on certain things. And I wonder if Sarah wanted them to hold off at the beginning because she saw that Eleanor wasn't going to be content for very long being his little arm girl. Mm. That could but, be, yeah. Yeah. But they end up they end up going on, waiting their two years. They get married in 1905. They actually get married in New York City. Teddy Roosevelt gives Eleanor away. They make sure that the wedding is in New York City on St. Patrick's Day so that Teddy can be there because he's there for the parade. And he's the big character at the wedding. No one actually pays much attention to Franklin and Eleanor because they're kind of taking the side piece at that point. Right. But they do pay more attention to Eleanor than they do to Franklin because she's actually Teddy's niece at that point in time. So she's a little more famous than he is but they um they they have their wedding and then they have a two-week engagement very exciting a two-week little honeymoon kind of piece 
at FDR's mother's house, Springwood, in Hyde Park by themselves. How exciting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> They're always under Sarah's thumb a little bit, but then they go off to Europe for their proper honeymoon, and they spend a couple months, the summertime there of 1905, in Europe. And uh, at this point, you can already kind of see some of the early tensions and anxiety starting to bubble up in their relationship because they hadn't known each other for that long. They were very young. Hmm. Eleanor was just turning 21 the year that they got married, and Franklin was 23, and that was after their two-year waiting period. So they're young. They don't really know what's going on, and Franklin actually starts to get a little anxious. He has anxiety rashes most of the time that he is overseas in Europe on their honeymoon. And Eleanor is pretty nervous, too. She finds that her husband, who is naturally flirtatious to anything that moves and is talking <laughs> and adventurous, she's a little scared that he's going to go off and, like, find another woman while they're on their honeymoon, and she's going to be too boring for him. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> right away, they're already, she's already worried. Yeah, and she's always worried. Like, from the very beginning of the relationship, I actually, at one point, she wrote in her diary that she was worried about ever living up to him and being mm. worthy of him as a person or as a wife. Mm. So there's already some discord going on, but they ref they return at the end of the summer to Springwood, to FDR's mother's house and FDR's house in Hyde Park. And I know, I, I, I think of that a lot, you know. They, they move back in with her mother-in-law and his mother, who's very overprotective and a little overbearing. I can only imagine how fun that must have been all the time for Eleanor. Right. And you're trying and you're trying to be you're trying to come up to this figure in his eyes, too. Like you said, she's worried. She's nervous that someone else may come in and, and take him. And now, you know, here's his mother again. Exactly. Yeah. And Sarah. Sarah tried to be as loving as she could to Eleanor. She really did. But I think Sarah wasn't really sure how to embrace Eleanor and the relationship either, because for so long it had been this dynamic with Franklin that she had had, and now there was another person involved. And Eleanor, Eleanor didn't miss out on this discomfort. There was actually a couple different times where she just, she just broke down and she was crying, and Franklin would try to console her and ask her what was wrong, and she's just like... I don't know if I can stay in this house. I don't know how I can do this. I just I just feel so out of place here. And since Franklin's response to most things emotionally was to either pretend it was great or keep pretending it was great until it actually did get great again, he just sort of would pat her on the back and be like, ah, it's okay. You pull yourself together and let's go get dinner. Yeah. Wow. So she was, she was a little marooned out there in Hyde right. Park. But she, she keeps trying, of course, as a woman of her day is – kind of necessitated to. She keeps going at it. And actually, right after they return from their honeymoon, she ends up finding out that she's pregnant. And their first child, their only daughter, is born in spring of 1906. Mm -hmm. And at that point, really after that, Eleanor's more or less off and on pregnant until 1916 for the next 10 years. Wow. So wow. she's popping out these kids. And it's interesting because Eleanor really didn't even want the kids that much. Franklin did, and Eleanor wanted to be a good mom, but she had never had the real experience of having a mom since she had jumped around so much in her childhood. So she she loves her best researching to be a mother. She reads all sorts of books for the day, which, as we all know, historical books on medicine and families tend to contain some pretty crazy stuff. <laughs> She's reading all this stuff, and she ends up getting even more at odds and feeling even more wrong-footed the harder she tries to take care of these kids and do right by them. At one point, there's actually a really great story where Sarah comes into the room, and Eleanor's got her baby hanging out over the windowsill in a little basket. 
and she's wearing like the equivalent of like a little t-shirt onesie and evidently her childcare book had said that that was the best thing to do for a little baby was give them fresh air no matter the weather <laughs> so and is like oh my god eleanor the kid's gonna die out there what are you doing and eleanor was thinking you know over here that she was this modern parent all read up on her her parenting knowledge and she was doing great so Sarah was constantly, I think, making her feel a little bit wrong-footed, even if it was unintentional in parenting. So she never really grew into that role, and it was always a source of tension because Franklin was this great playmate to the kids, but he didn't really have any social requirement to be a great involved dad like we would think of it today. A lot of times, rich men in the turn of the 20th century just kind of looked at their kids as really nice, quaint, interesting things that they could... <laughs> out once in a while and wave at from their nanny's arms right their accessories <laughs> yeah exactly so they were they were all right they really they really didn't turn out to be great parents either of them i wouldn't say but eleanor does her best to take care of them and sarah though sarah really steps in and mothers the heck out of her own kids kids because mm. that's what she's great at wow that's that's yeah. amazing that you know it, it's one of those things where I guess Eleanor just it's it's going back to trying to appease Franklin showing that she's worthy of the job, you know. It's sad to say it that way, but where it's kind of like, yeah. you know, I got to be the best mother I can be and not only for the kids, but for Franklin as well and all this other stuff and she kind of goes overboard with it. Exactly. And she was trying so hard, but I just I also don't think that she was really like born a mother. Like mm -hmm. some people have maternal instincts, some people want to be parents, but I don't think that was really Eleanor's calling and she was trying so hard, but the harder she tried, the more she felt off put by Sarah and the more just wrong footed about the whole thing she kind of got. Mm. And that's kind of why a lot of things continued pretty bumpily that way until about 1918. FDR had been building his career first as a lawyer, and then he actually ran for New York State Senate in 1910. And then in 1913, President Woodrow Wilson actually asked him to be in his cabinet as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. So FDR was off doing his own thing, building his career, being involved in politics. And again, Eleanor's kind of riding this bumpy road to being a mom and trying to find her place and everything. But in 1918, FDR actually ends up going away with his job as Assistant Secretary of the Navy overseas to see the landscape of war, really. That was kind of something that I guess a few people here and then did. If you were a lower government official, you just kind of went over and were like, wow, isn't that impressive? Time for me to go home now and be in the government. <laughs> yes, yes. I've seen it all now. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> So he, he actually almost gets his, like, ass shot off, if I may be so bold as to say that. <laughs> he, like, gets himself all in, in a couple different messes. And he's he's just watching, though. This is a really great time to go see. Like, he'd go see a, a sports ball game. Right. And he ends up falling ill while he's over there. And he's rushed home to New York Harbor, though. And Eleanor, of course, rushes out to greet him to take care of him. And she's unpacking his things, going through his luggage. And she actually finds in one of his boxes a parcel of letters from her own social secretary, Lucy Mercer, to her husband and back. And they're a little spicy. They're mm. love letters. And understandably at this point, she's a little miffed. Right. This was not the best news Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> has ever received. Yeah. And she actually, she actually at that point, uh, seeing the whole situation, she offers Franklin a divorce. And FDR really does seriously consider it for a second. But Sarah, his mother always in charge, steps in again and says, you know what? This isn't happening. We're all going to sit down. We're going to talk this out. And by we're going to talk this out, she means I'm going to fix everything. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna keep it. So, I'm gonna keep it good for my boy. Yeah. Right. Right. So she turns to Franklin though, and she's like, Franklin, if you divorce Eleanor Roosevelt, I'm going to disown you. Mm. And then she turns to Eleanor and she says, Eleanor, look at this kid. He's great, isn't he? I just did a great job <laughs> on this one. He's handsome. He's charming. He's got this great career. He's going places. Why don't you and I just take a hot second to think about this and put ourselves on the back burner for a minute, our own desires? Why don't we make sure that we don't kill FDR's political career while it's still getting started by doing something rash like getting a divorce? Why don't we just hang on here and let him go off to be the great and special little kid that I know my son can be? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So El Eleanor thinks about it, and of course, I think she did, I, as cheesy as it sounds, I think she did kind of see some of the greatness in FDR. So she she thinks about it, and she decides to hang on there. But of course, with the ultimatum that Lucy Mercer steps out of the picture, so she does. And at that point, Eleanor's kind of got a little bit of a lucky situation going on, because she's got a lot of relationship leverage now, some bargaining chips. Mm -hmm. And she decides that she's no longer really required to stick into this, this family dynamic, and she's going to use this as an opportunity to branch out on her own. She doesn't really owe anyone as much. She's going to go do her own thing. Mm -hmm. So as the, as the 1920s begin, FDR's own career is taking off. He's actually vice president on the Democratic ticket in 1920. And Eleanor, she's off doing her own thing now, too. She starts building her own public life, and she's got new friends like Marion Dickerman and Nancy Cook, who she actually did a ton of work with the women's branch of the Democratic Party. She's involved with the League of Women Voters, the Women's Democratic Newsletter. She's actually a part owner and on the administrative board of the Todd Hunter School for Girls in New York. Mm. And her and her friends also build Val Kill Industries up in Hyde Park, oh, which wow. is like a, um, it's supposed to be a tiny little factory kind of deal that was to teach local farmers in the area new skills to supplement their income. So like carpentry and tinsmithing, and that for a while becomes a really big thing for Eleanor and for her friends. So she's she's got a lot of things going on. She's branching out and she's becoming kind of successful in her own right throughout the 1920s. Mm -hmm. But this is all kind of after and alongside the second real crisis and probably the biggest crisis that they did face together in their relationship in 1921. Actually, in 1921, FDR, during the summer of that year, FDR was up at Campobello Island as he had spent every summer since he was a small boy doing all sorts of great summer stuff, you know, hiking, swimming, fishing with his kids, sailing. And on one particular day, actually, in the summer of 1921, FDR actually swims across the lake to an island in the middle of the lake, puts out a fire on the island, and then swims back and races his kids home. Wow. Yeah, he's a very active, very energetic, 39-year-old yeah. man, and nothing in his life has really ever seemed to him like it could go wrong. He's had this really just blessed, treasured little life. Everything mm. is going great for him. His mother makes sure of that, of course, when it doesn't go quite smoothly. Right. But that night, that night, he gets home, and he's feeling a little worn down, you know, a little tired out, and he thinks, maybe I'll go up to bed early, sleep it off, and wake up refreshed tomorrow for another great day. Nothing again bad could possibly be going wrong. So he goes upstairs at that point, and he gets into bed. That's actually the very last time that Franklin Roosevelt would walk unassisted ever again. Wow. He wakes up the next morning and he's not feeling well. He tries to get out of bed and his legs don't really work. And within a couple of days, a lot of times people don't realize they, they see him as this wheelchair president. Mm -hmm. But within a couple of days, 
he was actually paralyzed from the neck down after contracting polio. Wow. So wow. this was sending him into sudden crisis. Again, he had no idea how to deal with bad things. He was trying his best, but all of a sudden he couldn't walk anymore. He couldn't function. He couldn't do anything by himself. And Eleanor came back into the picture, of course. This kind of dragged their their stories back together a little tighter because she now had to help take care of him. She would change his catheter, which no one else really, knowing the, the social climate of the times, no one else was really allowed to do that. That was a very private kind of thing. She was there to do all sorts of things for him. And he ends up needing a lot of time to recover. He, of course, as a lot of people know, goes down to Warm Springs and makes his whole foundation down there for polios and starts the March of Dimes and does all sorts of work to help polio patients. But Eleanor has the really important job in FDR's recovery. She actually is tasked with keeping FDR's career, political career, alive the entire time. And with the help of FDR's really close political advisor, Louis Howe, she learns how to be a little bit more confident in front of people. She used to laugh and giggle when she got nervous. She had a very high-pitched voice that would crack when she got scared. He trained her out of all of that and sent her back out there, out into the world, out into politics, to keep his ideas alive, to make sure his political career could still remain viable while he was relearning how to walk, how to be a person. So this goes on for a while. They're struggling. There's a lot of difficulty, of course. But by 1924, FDR has recovered his ability of walking and moving around as a normal person enough to make a public appearance. He's actually asked that year to introduce the um, one of the nominees at the Democratic National Convention, Al Smith. And Al Smith did not win the Democratic National Convention nomination that year. And of course, he didn't win the presidency. But the really remarkable thing about Al Smith's entire role in this was that he himself helped FDR relaunch his political career. FDR gave a speech introducing him, his happy warrior speech, and instantly he put himself back in the gate. He was seen to have been walking again. He was seen to be getting better because everyone had again heard about his polio and was afraid that he was a complete invalid now. So he was back, he was doing things, and it was this amazing speech that brought the entire crowd to its feet. Something so rousing, so Franklin Roosevelt in its charm and its talent that it was just really remarkable that he was able to do that. And it was all thanks to Eleanor that he actually even got that far. He wouldn't have been a political anybody if she had not kept his name alive. And he depended on her so much during his recovery for her political help. And she also used her time away to shine as her own political animal, to start again building herself too, to really become someone herself. And by 1928, they continue this pattern of slow recovery and keeping trying to rebuild FDR's strength together, of course, as a team. And in 1928, FDR was ready for his big return to politics, him actually becoming somebody. This was, this was his big moment. He was actually pushed to run for governor in 1928 by Al Smith, the guy he had given the nominating speech for in 24. And Al Smith lost the presidential um, race that year. He was running for president and he had lost that year and he was the incumbent governor of New York. So his thought was that he was going to win. FDR would then become governor and he would have a lackey in New York because Al Smith saw FDR as basically a cripple. So the guy, just somebody that, that Smith could play while mm. he was out. He could take advantage of him. Yeah, exactly. Right. But the Roosevelts were not the sort to be taken advantage of, as we all know. Mm. So 
Smith actually loses the presidential nomination, as I said, but FDR becomes the governor, and Smith is quite salty about this whole situation. But this is great for the FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt team, hmm. because Eleanor now has the broad influence with the women's branch of the Democratic Party, with all sorts of state Democrats, and she's gaining all sorts of her own political clout and has her own old independent political career. She's a very active first lady of New York, and she loves the maneuverability her position kind of gives her there. And of course, FDR is governor. That's great for him. And especially after the Great Depression hits in 29, he starts a lot of social welfare programs that make him really popular. And it turns out that New York State ended up being, because of Franklin Roosevelt, kind of guinea pigs for the New Deal. And it really helped them. So their, their governorship and him being able to become governor was just kind of the beginning of this amazingly effective political partnership. Yeah, so it's his it's his stepping stone to the presidency, but it's also kind of like a, a trial run, I guess you could say, right? Because he's learning about how to overcome uh, the weaknesses in the economy and stuff like that, and he can use it towards a, a national scale then and say, well, look what we did in, in New York State. Exactly. It's not, and I think not only is it like a political test run, but it's a personal test run too. He has to know how to maneuver his public appearances, how he can present himself to the public as being strong and effective, how he can best use his energy, even though he still is paralyzed from the waist down at this point, how he can do that and actually make himself have a, an effective political career. Is this when he so, starts to become savvy with like the press and stuff? With, with it is, with yeah, his yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it, too, because one of the big issues for that gubernatorial campaign was whether or not Franklin Roosevelt was even strong enough to do it. Because, again, everyone still kind of saw him as being a little bit questionable. He couldn't walk. He was so sick for so long. So he actually ends up doing this this huge campaign. He goes so hard campaigning for governor and campaigning for Smith for president. He goes all over the state to all of the counties, does all sorts of whistle-stop stuff. Tear, like completely exhausts himself doing it, but shows to the entire country, basically, but especially the state of New York, that Franklin Roosevelt is not a guy who is weak. He is a guy to be completely not messed with. Mm -hmm. and, so, and, and Eleanor's behind that, too. I mean, she's, you know, she's really instrumental in him. I mean, he's he goes paralyzed in 21, and he doesn't come out until 24, basically, at the Al Smith uh, engagement. There's three years there behind the scenes of working through all of this. Yeah, exactly. And she was even after even after 24, she was still doing a ton of stuff. Right. She again was very involved in the Democratic Party and she was laying a lot of the groundwork. I think that that's a good way to look at the relationship a lot in terms of politics in general. He was this this big guy, the overarching kind of figure, the face to everything. And Eleanor was the one doing a lot of the groundwork, the legwork, going out there and talking to people and making connections, you know? Do, do you think his do you think his polio uh, when when he when he acquires polio, do you think that's when Eleanor uh, her role changes significantly, or was she always kind of like in the background, being a strong-willed uh, person? It was just that it was a different step in that trajectory, or was the polio like the defining, like okay, now I have to uh, really be behind this and and help get the wheels turning here? 
I think that Eleanor Roosevelt would have been content being less of a figure and just kind of doing her own thing. Again, being involved in a lot of different things because she she was definitely involved and community oriented beforehand. Mm -hmm. But this was her opportunity and this was the beginning of their big step into the limelight mm -hmm. because she now had to promote his political career. And the entire thought was banking on the fact that she was promoting a career that would one day launch them into the White House. Mm -hmm. So this becomes, yeah. this becomes even a... a a more significant partnership because of these these trials and tribulations in the early 20s then. Absolutely, absolutely. I think especially uh, people talk all the time about how polio really made Franklin Roosevelt, but I think like you said, polio made both of them. Her mm. involvement, their connection, that really cementing their connection. Mm. And of course, people talk about it in terms of making Franklin Roosevelt a little bit knocked off his high horse because again for so long he had been this privileged great kid who had never needed anything and just kind of skated along and he couldn't walk he had to relearn everything he had to struggle and i think in a lot of ways that struggle enabled him to really relate and really be a great president to a country that was so often in times of crisis administration when does he decide uh when he's governor of new york when does he decide like hey what's time to make, make the next step here uh, and go for the highest office, and and how did Eleanor like relate to that? How did she, you know, say, well, okay, let's do this, or was she like a little hesitant? What what was that dynamic like? So the original plan, actually, between Franklin and Louis Howe, again, his really close political advisor, both of their really close political advisor, really, but again, the plan had originally actually been set back several years. So FDR wasn't really supposed to even take the presidency until midway through the 30s, if not the late 30s. But he kind of got boosted into this gubernatorial role by Al Smith and then quickly kind of gained traction as this great governor and ended up being nominated for president and ended up turning this whole thing snowballed much quicker than they thought it was going to. And so they ended up in a lot more of a position of prominence than they had planned on much more quickly. But in terms of Eleanor, she actually was really hesitant about her role as first lady because she thought, you know, while she had been first lady of New York, husband to the governor, and before that, there had been a lot less scrutiny on her. She could kind of do much more as she pleased because she was a little bit more radical in some ways, a little bit more progressive than a lot of the Democrats in general were. But now she was worried that she was going to have to settle down into the role of regular first lady, you know, right. serving dinner parties and doing all sorts of things she really didn't have time for. So she was actually really worried about that at first. But Louis Howe, again, he is essential to their success, too. I could do a whole nother podcast even on him. <laughs> but he, he actually, um, Louis Howe actually helped create like this public relations bubble, basically, for Eleanor Roosevelt, for her to be first lady, but also go off and do her own thing for her to reshape and redefine what it meant to be married to the president. Because she was, she was turning into this whole activist kind of thing. She was, she was going off, she was climbing in mines, she was connecting with real life, she was throwing all this tradition in the trash. Like I said, she was, she was going all over the country, talking to people, seeing how people were experiencing the Great Depression. She was talking to labor unions and going into different factories and mines, and she actually helped set up her own little pet project as part of the New Deal, kind of. I guess it's kind of like a fringe New Deal thing. But the community, the model community of Arthurdale, West Virginia, that was all her idea. Oh, wow. she, yeah, she had all sorts of things that she was planning. 
And she was really as remarkable of a political figure as her husband, who, of course, you know, we know does amazing things after he's elected in 32. He does makes the Works Progress Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the National Labor Relations Act, Social Security, all sorts of things, the fireside chats. He revolutionizes the presidency, but in that same way that he revolutionizes how it how the government and the American government interacts with its people. Eleanor revolutionizes what it means to be a first lady and what it means to be a woman in the White House or being presidency adjacent. Hmm. That, that's, so, that's fascinating because we hear about certain first ladies before her, but they're always in that, uh, you know, the shadows of the White House doing things, other than maybe Mary, Mary Lincoln or something. But, uh, you know, Eleanor really sounds like she's just a go-getter and she's ready to hit the ground running as soon as she realizes that this is going to be their life now. Exactly. I think the only the only first lady before her that could even compare is Sarah Childress Polk, who was mm. like the Lady Macbeth to James Polk's Macbeth. Yeah, there's, a, there's a name you don't hear. <laughs> yeah, but that's not really a positive. Eleanor Roosevelt was doing great things and not right. just stealing Mexico. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's a different podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But I think I think their partnership in the White House, and especially the bigger they became as political figures, was this really beautiful contrast. You know, she was the idealist. She had these visions, these great hopes for what America could be. And Franklin was a little bit more pragmatic. The political maneuver was the one to tell Eleanor, no, we can't do that. We'll piss off the Southerners or no, we can't do this or that or the other thing. We have to play it safe. We have to keep it keep it neutral. And we have to kind of Make, thing, make sure things work. We're not going to die on these idealistic hills. But I think definitely Eleanor pushed him into being some of the, the progressive kind of president that we know him as today. So Eleanor's the dreamer, and he's the kind of like the, he's the guy that's like, well, hold on, we got to do this first, and then we're going to go do this. Exactly, yeah. She's like she's like the heart, and he's the, the mouth and the brain. <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, not to say that she's not smart, but she's... Oh. She's much more pushy in terms of what she wants the American people to be okay with. Right. This is why this is exactly why some marriages work out different ways in that uh I know for myself personally I'm a dreamer, but my spouse is not. She's very grounded and so I need that to keep me grounded and be like, exactly. Okay, you know, you need to go this way and do it this way and you might you might fulfill that. And it sounds like Eleanor's more like me uh, in that she's like, okay, let's go out and attack this issue. And uh, Franklin's kind of like, well, you know, we got we to take this step by step here. And he understands the political uh, backlash if something goes too radical too quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Someone has to be the one with the plan. <laughs> right. right. And that's, that's more of the Franklin. But Eleanor's the one with the ideas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great partnership. It is. It really is. And I think that, again, they could not have accomplished nearly as much if they didn't have each other, because Franklin would have never, I think, had some of the 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 cojones, if you will, mm -hmm. to go out there and dream of certain things. And then Eleanor wouldn't have had the capability to make some of those things a reality. How does how does the the onset and the and the time frame of World War Two make it different for for Eleanor herself because she's okay she's this go-getter I know she does a lot of things during World War II uh how how does that conflict when it erupts how does that uh you know make her come out of her shell even more 
or or what happens with her during that time? Honestly, I would say that it just kind of broadens the scope of her her ideas and her being able to help. Because, of course, she's not like a, a military mind and she's not, again, like the political the political maneuverer. Right. But she's she's going out there and she's, again, doing a lot of that groundwork, a lot of that like human kind of side of the whole thing where she'll go out. She went all the way to the front lines in the Pacific on like the farthest out island out there. And she would go and talk to soldiers and be like, hey, it's going to be great. We have something important worth fighting for. You know, mm -hmm. she would be the one going out there and talking to people and really, really motivating the whole thing. And she'd come back to FDR and be like, hey, this is what we need to do. Is this possible? How can we help people this way? And she was, of course, as you would expect Eleanor Roosevelt to be, she was very um, in favor of, of women's involvement in the war effort. She was very vocal about that, would go out to like um, women's army corps, like their, um, I guess, inductment, like their, 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 um, the beginning ceremonies for them. So she would go out to that kind of thing all the time. She was the public face, I think, in a lot of ways of, of the Roosevelts, because FDR was very often, whether it was because of his limitations from his polio or just because he was busy being the president, he couldn't get out there to everyone. So he, she, she ended up becoming like the really like the hand to shake of, of the Roosevelt right. administration. If he was the face, she was the hand you were going to hold. Yeah, she's marketing this thing. To, to, yeah, to the public way, yeah. and she's also and she's also kind of like i don't mean it this way but she's kind of like roosevelt's spy on the front line so to speak but she's not a spy obviously but she's like his uh you know the person out there saying this is what's going on or this is what i've seen yeah she's the recon right exactly exactly i don't want i don't want to use the term spy because that's negative but uh <laughs> yeah she's she's out there seeing what's going on and and feeling the water so to speak and saying exactly. like, we need to do this and that's that goes like you said that's a a great way of putting it for for her as you said it that you know she she's his mobility now when that's going on yes she really is she is now that's not to say though that because of course they they weather the great depression they weather world war ii they go through all of it and she's of course doing all of these things and he's of course doing the bigger political maneuvering things but that's not to say that she wasn't occasionally stifled by his political maneuvering during either of those those events because there were a lot of times when again she was very much pushing for something better that franklin roosevelt just didn't feel was viable for the times like for instance one of the most enormous stains on the roosevelt administration the fdr administration was internment Japanese internment and Eleanor was vehemently against this she was definitely opposed to it and she was she made it very clear to him that she did not think that was the right thing but FDR pushed forward with it again for political reasons they weren't always on the same page they weren't always feeling the same waters if Eleanor was going out there to see how things were but I think a lot of that they they ended up again pushing each other to be the best they could be in a lot of ways that's fantastic because I didn't know what her feelings were on internment and uh that's like you say that's like the the stain on his on his presidency and uh sometimes when i post something about fdr someone will immediately shoot back with well what about the internment camps it's almost immediate and i don't know if you've had that happen at at, uh, at your facility or not where someone will bring that up and it's kind of like well yeah that happened we can't run away from it but uh you know we have to take the position of Eleanor, <laughs> you know, Eleanor, yeah, exactly. Eleanor was definitely against it then. 
And I think, I think, you know, I've had people come up to me on social media or at work because I'm a very vocal Roosevelt fan Mm -hmm. and people will will point this out. And again, like you said, it's not something we can run away from. It's the truth of history. It's the the way things happened. And of course, like any other person or group of people or country in American history, there are flaws. Mm -hmm. Roosevelt's big ones, you know, of course, were internment as a president and then personally his infidelity. But I think what I, t- what I say to people who do say that and bring that up, because, of course, it's a very valid point, I think one of the most remarkable things, regardless of political opinion, regardless of how you feel about the events of the Roosevelt administration, the thing you cannot deny, the most moving thing about this entire story is the hope they brought to the country. I mean, they could they could move rooms of people. He was he was the reason, and Eleanor, of course, too, was the reason why the entire country had the will to keep going on. One of my favorite quotes about FDR is actually, someone said, I think a historian at one point said, that the best New Deal program was simply Franklin Roosevelt's smile. The fact that there was someone in the White House at the helm who had the hope, the smile, the heart to keep going and to will you to keep going, too, and who knew what it was like to go through difficult things. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic quote. That's that's amazing. And and, uh, you know, they lead the, the country through the Second World War right right to the end, almost when FDR passes. And uh, what was her life like after he passes on? I'm so glad you asked that because people tend to forget that she had one. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause we think of them as this dynamic duo or some people have this myth that they were just separate entities, you know, well, yeah. he did his thing and she did her thing and they rarely talked and they did all this other stuff. But the other myth is that when FDR dies, you know, everyone or the earth misconception is when FDR dies, Eleanor just goes away. And whatever happens, happens. And I don't, I don't feel that's even near correct. Absolutely not. I think, I think it's really interesting, actually, because Eleanor, actually, immediately after her husband's death, had said at one point that she initially kind of was hushing everyone down. You know, her story's over. This story is done. This is it for me. I'm going to go live up at my house at Valkill in Hyde Park. I'm going to retire with my grandkids. And this is, this is going to be the end. But it wasn't. She actually ended up having this whole rocket launched, a brilliant political career on her own that actually Franklin dying was the best thing for. No offense to him. (laughs) Right. But like she actually at one point also was quoted saying, you know, someone asked her how she felt about FDR's death or she was going to give a speech and she stands up there and she's like, oh, I feel so free. (laughs) Like (laughs) she's no longer trapped by that political maneuvering by the expectations of being first lady, by FDR's presidential expectations and need for political balance. Mm. She kind of became like a super radical almost for the day. I was going to say, has, I was gonna say she has no, I don't want to use the term referee, but she's on her own now. And, yeah, and she, this is the, all part on Eleanor's part. Right, the dreamer is free now, and now she exactly. can dream however she wants. Yeah. And I mean, she was actually asked a couple times, like if she would run for Senate or if she would run for for a president, even like different people questioned her if she was going to run for different political office. Mm -hmm. And she never did. And I honestly think it would have been the biggest detriment to her because with that freedom, she was able to do so, so much, you know, she actually uh, just to name a few. She ended up becoming one of the first American delegates to the United Nations was basically the 
primary drafter of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That was her baby. That was her precious thing. She loved that. That was her life's work, really. She wanted to be known for having made that. Mm -hmm. She was also very involved in the civil rights movement. She was on the board for the NAACP, helped chair the first National Congress on Racial Equality. She had underprivileged boys' schools come to visit her house, her Valkyl house, so they could go swimming and play tennis and have a nice play date, basically, hmm. with Eleanor Roosevelt. Wow. She'd had her column My Day, her everyday um, syndicated column My Day, since the 1930s, but she continued writing it up until her death, and people would ask her all sorts of advice, regular people asking her life advice on how to be a person and whether or not swearing was okay. <laughs> she, would, she would give them answers to everything. I think one of my favorites was um, someone once asked her, there are a lot of people, you know, saying all these these bad four-letter words. What do you think of this becoming acceptable in society? And Eleanor was like, I think the only bad four-letter words are hate and wars. Wow. That's yeah. really neat. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, even after, even after her White House days, she got over 100 letters a day. She uh, went four times to the Middle East for peace, once in the last year of her life to petition for, for peace between uh, Israel and Palestine and trying to settle the political issues there. She was a vocal opponent of McCarthyism, and world leaders actually would come to visit her. Like Khrushchev and Churchill, they would come to her house and talk to her and get her opinion on things. Hmm. There's actually a great picture of Winston Churchill swimming in her pool in at Valkyl looking like a big old frog wow and, um, that's cool rumor that's cool. Has it actually he he enjoyed skinny dipping i've heard from a couple different sources so um there was one person who actually watched him get into the pool and they said he came up with his towel around him and he had a, a glass of um whatever i guess scotch or whiskey in his hand and a cigar in the other one and he waddled on up on mrs roosevelt's porch and took off his towel and put down his his drink and then he jumped into the pool displaced you know three quarters of the water because he's winston heck and churchill <laughs> right and he's back up to the top like a big old frog and he's got a cigar in his mouth completely dry oh, wow. because that was the kind of fun roosevelt time you had when you were over there <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome that's a great story yeah. and then um she also ended up doing a lot of commercials actually for charity i find them hilarious you can find them on youtube but there's actually um there's one where she's doing them for like she does them for like mattress companies and hearing aid companies and margarine companies. But there's one on YouTube from Lucky Margarine where um, <laughs> it's just her holding a piece of toast with some some spread on it. And she's like, 20 years ago, we never would have thought margarine could have been a thing. But now it's on my toast and I love it. <laughs> so. <laughs> And people would actually ask her, like, why she was doing these commercials, because, of course, that's sullying the Roosevelt name. You know, you're really just rubbing it all in the dirt like that just for for money. Right. And you're she would actually write back. Yeah. Right. And she would write back to these people and she would say, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but there's literally no way for me to make as much money to donate to other people as if I was doing these commercials. So I'm going to keep doing them for the greater good. Huh. So all that money and all the money from her books and everything, a ton of that, most of that was going to different charities, different causes. Wow. And she also, you know, since I'm on an Eleanor Roosevelt role here, she also <laughs> ended up becoming the mom, basically, of the Democratic Party. JFK himself actually went over to her house at Valkill in Hyde Park, asking her blessing to run for president to support his candidacy. And she... She really wasn't having it. She thought he was kind of showy, just a pretty face. And she ended up really, like, haggling it out with him. 
there's a whole there's a bunch of cu- well there's a couple pictures actually of them having a whole tough talk in her living room with her floral couch and their teacups and she really she really run him through the ringer and then finally he comes out and she she made him she demanded that he 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 take a stronger stance on civil rights. That was her her whole thing for endorsing his candidacy. If he would do that, then she would support him. But there's a great picture of them coming out the front door of her house when she's after this whole conversation was over. And she's leading the way and she's all hunched over. She's older because this is towards the end of her life in the early 60s. And she's hunched over, but she's grinning like she just won something huge. <laughs> and he's standing behind her. He's walking behind her and he's smiling, but he looks kind of dead inside (laughs) like he's been like bludgeoned over the head and someone actually evidently comes up to him and asks him you know how'd it go did you did you win her over and he says you know i I don't know what i agreed to i don't really know what happened but i'm absolutely smitten with eleanor roosevelt (laughs) so they end up getting on just as well that's awesome I, i knew that she had spoken to jfk before he ran and that and that that kind of like hit me as there's a legacy right there that that showcases the Roosevelt legacy is exactly, she, right? she like, solidifies it. You know? Exactly. Like who was she? She was just an ex first lady. And she was right. so essential to the entire country at that point that F, JFK was coming to her because he knew that the country would trust her judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that Eleanor would be an amazing person to follow on Twitter. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. yeah. Especially today. <laughs> yeah, she would have some four-letter words, I think, coming out and you know, about a lot of things that I don't want to get into. But she would be one of those people that would be like, you know, yeah, I have to follow her. Uh, that's that's yeah. one of them. Uh, but, and yeah, it, th- it, she's a tremendous character and so mm-hmm. and so underrated, in my opinion. Yes, you know, FDR definitely. gets the gets the cred because he's he, the position, the office that he was in. But far too often that that overshadows what all Eleanor did, not only for herself and for others, but for him as well. Yeah. And I think, I think together their story is so breathtaking. They were so remarkable and so real. They had this special kind of love, this special kind of partnership. I mean, Eleanor, she was always doubting herself, always afraid that she wasn't being useful enough to everyone. And she was determined to be helpful to everyone on any occasion. And FDR, of course, had his own faults and his own doubts and his messiness. There's actually a really great story at one point where um, towards the end of FDR's life, he's actually in his office in the White House, and one of his sons is running errands for him. And he comes in and he sees FDR kind of spaced out a little, looking up at 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 the wall. And Elliot, I think it was his son, looks over to the wall where FDR is looking, and there's a painting there, a painting of Eleanor that FDR had loved. And he comments on it at that point, and he says, you know, I think they got her beauty just right in that one, don't you? And then another time, I think, I know, it was either the same time or another time, I'm getting my stories a little fuzzy, but he also, he turns back to his son, and he says, do you think after all this is over, me and Babs, which was his nickname for Eleanor, could could get back to the way we used to be. Do you think we could we could be the same way we used to be, be together again? Hmm. And I think, yeah, they they really loved each other. They hung on to each other that entire time. And through all their bumps and bruises, there's a special kind of love that can endure all that, that can be that close and that tight of a partnership. 
And it's important, I think, again, to remember that they're real people. They're soft people, broken and put back together people. And from all this realness was born something so extraordinary, some of the most wonderful, inspiring stuff humanity has to offer. I mean, this was the man who could come on the radio, right, during the darkest days of people's lives. And people would hear his voice, and they would turn up the volume to listen. And when it was done, they would turn to each other and smile, a right. real smile for the first time in weeks and days and months, because that was their guy. That was the guy who was fighting for them in their corner. And then Eleanor was the woman who had her own name misspelled on her desk, on her name tag, to just to prove a point to everyone that mistakes are important and that no one is perfect. Who drove through the mountains of Tennessee alone, facing bomb threats to support the civil rights movement, and who was always told her visions for the country were too idealistic, and then went on and said, "Damn it, fight me anyway." So <laughs> they, they were they were so remarkable, and right. I think if we can get nothing else from Franklin and from Eleanor, we can remember to push hard for what's right, even when it seems impossibly difficult. Look at every person as a friend, and always offer a helping hand, and have hope, really, because humanity whether in this overawing form of a Roosevelt, or I guess in people like you and me, is this really beautiful, magical, powerful, earth-shaking thing. And I'd like to think there's a little Roosevelt in all of us, you know, that bold and determined to help damn the obstacles, idealistic and charismatic and visionary, even a little revolutionary, even. Right. I hope, I guess, I guess, I try to think about this after every time I give a tour at work, but I kind of hope that we're all living up to that example, you know? Yeah, I hope so. And, and some of us are a little more Eleanor than others, and some of us are more Franklin than others. But uh, I think I think that we all have something we can bring to the table for the greater good. And I, yeah. I hope we can do that. But uh, I, I hope that I'd also, I hope that I can get up and be on one of your tours sometime uh, <laughs> because I need to come back because I came over and, and did, uh, I stopped in the library I had a six-hour drive home from uh, New England, and uh, Hyde Park was a three hours into it, and I usually stop halfway for about two hours, and I stopped at uh, the library there, and or the visitor center there, I'm sorry, and uh, you know, hit up some, some of the bookstore stuff and then had to go on the road. So I didn't get a chance to do any house tours or anything, so I need to come back and, and do that. You do. It's so awesome to be in there, and there's so many cool little things in the house that have funny stories behind them. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. I would yes. love to. I'd love to come in and see that. But, but, uh, yeah. That this has been fantastic, Lexi. I appreciate your time, and I I know that a lot of people uh, have have commented on uh, your your love for the home there and other things, and I've heard it through the grapevine. So I know you're you're a great guide and a great historian and i can't wait to see what the future has in store for you too oh thank you so much i'm so excited to have done this you know any time to talk about my my friendly babies the roosevelts absolutely. i'd be glad to do it <laughs> absolutely well lexi thank you so much for doing this and uh i hope that many of my listeners here will come visit you uh here in the near future and get some tours at uh at hyde park so, awesome. So they, they could definitely use the press. <laughs> yes, yes. We need to get you out there and uh, and get the entire uh, the house and everything out there so many more can hear about it. So, again, thank you, Lexi, for your time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you again.